So we're going to dive into this, this idea of, of this man, this incredible man. As we're going to pick up with the story, he's actually a boy, but he becomes a king of Israel, really the greatest king of Israel altogether. Um, but to understand a little bit about this story and understand kind of the background on David, we, we need to kind of understand the time that David grew up in. And for us, it's going to be really hard to wrap our, our heads around it, maybe wrap our hearts around the, the kind of atmosphere, the kind of life, the kind of times that David grew up in, especially when it came to, to ancient warfare. <clears throat> David grew up in a very, very violent time. And it's almost impossible for us to get our head around it because when we think of ancient warfare, we tend to do a few things and Hollywood tends to help us. When we think of ancient warfare, we, we typically glamorize it, we fictionalize it, and we sanitize it. Sometimes we even romanticize it. And, and like I said, Hollywood has helped because we have movies like Braveheart. They just took you know, violence in movies to a whole other level. And then Gladiator came out and it took violence to an even further level. But, but no matter how much we can see in movies or how much Hollywood tries to help us understand, we, we just don't understand what it was like to grow up in, in those, like live in that kind of ancient time with that kind of ancient warfare. Especially for us nowadays, because our military, when we think of warfare with, with any kind of man and woman who engages in this, they see warfare from a distance, right? We see it from a drone, or we see it from, from th through a, a long-distance lens, or, or through a scope on a gun. Like, like it's very kind of long-distance. We fight at a distance. But in ancient times, it was really in your face. You, know, you, had, you had a shield in one hand, and you were looking over your shield into the eyes of another man who had a sword and a shield in his hand. It was very like hand-to-hand -hand kind of combat, at arm's length. I mean, so much so that in ancient times, when you were, were in the battlefield fighting with people, you could smell their breath. You could tell if they've had anything to drink to kind of build up some courage to get on the battlefield. You could tell what they had for lunch. And oftentimes, you could look into the eyes of the, of the person you were attacking, and you could see if there was any sense of fear or terror at all. You see, ancient warfare was visceral, and it was bloody, and it was horrific, and oftentimes when we think of warfare, it's, it's now thought of as a push of a button. But in ancient times, it was horrible. It was graphic. It was scary. And you would look into the eyes of other men and you would see the terror. But you knew it was even worse when you looked into the eyes of your opponent and there was just calm. Because if you're in ancient warfare and you're looking into the eyes of another man and there is just a sense of calm, you're looking in the eyes of a trained killer, of a man killer, of a man who fears no fear, and this was his home, and this was his place, and he is just bred to kill. And if you were lucky enough to survive and make it out of the battle, as, as most people weren't, if you were lucky enough to survive, oftentimes you had to distinguish what was your blood and what was the blood of your opponent because you'd be covered. And, and after the adrenaline rush wore off, oftentimes after the adrenaline rush wore off, people would realize they'd been cut or lost a limb. But through the battle, they wouldn't realize because the adrenaline rush was so great and so powerful. But if they made it off the field and they kind of got the blood off them and realized there was their own blood, if they were lucky enough to survive, they, they realized this, that if I have any kind of puncture wound or stab, I'm probably going to lose that limb or lose that leg or maybe even lose my life. You see, in, in ancient times, they didn't understand germs, but they did understand that if someone were to stab me and a piece of my clothing were to go into that wound, I would lose that arm or I would lose that leg. So most men fought naked or near naked on this incredible battlefield, looking across at other men who were scared for their lives with swords in their hands, ready to kill each other. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's like the greatest opening to a series we've ever done. <clears throat> You're not gonna hear that, all, that often. We're gonna dive right into the, into the text this morning. This is found in 1 Samuel 
You can read along with me. There's a lot of scriptures. We'll put them up on the screen so you can keep up. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. You probably have heard of this story before. If you didn't realize, this is actually a real story that's included in the text and in scripture. You may have heard this and just thought it was some kind of like business illustration, but we believe this to be an actual story. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp and his height was six cubits in a span. Now we have no idea what that means, but it actually is this. He was about nine feet, nine inches tall, like a modern day giant. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and at its point, or its iron point, weighed 600 shekels. That means it's about 15 pounds. So he's carrying around this nine-foot, like nine-inch tall guy, carrying around this spear that's about six foot tall, with its iron head weighing 15 pounds. This wasn't like a throwing javelin. This was the kind of guy with his height. He would stand behind the second line of the Philistine army, and he would just look over their shields and kill, kill, kill. Never to be trifled with, no one to ever come against him, because he's a giant, with a six-foot spear, taking out anything in his path. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of the Philistines, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Saul was the king of Israel, and as we're going to discover, Saul was the very first king of Israel. Choose a man, he says. Have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul the king and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. <clears throat> and Goliath came out day after day after day after day and made those threats twice a day to the, the armies of Israel and to King Saul. And the armies of Israel were terrified because they were looking for their king to step up. And of course they were looking for their king because of the first reason, he was the king, right? He's the leader. He'll know what to do. If anything, he'll fight for us. And more than that, Saul was the tallest man in all of Israel. The scripture tells us at another point when Saul was chosen to be king, he was the most handsome and he was head and shoulders. It's kind of like me when I stand next to, to Mike DeVito. You know, the big guy who preached last week. He's head and shoulders above everyone else. This was King Saul. So the armies of Israel, they see this giant come out from the ranks, threaten them, threaten them with ultimate slavery if they can't defeat them. They're scared to death. They're terrified and dismayed. And who do they look to? Their king. Because that's where they placed their trust. And we would say, well, of course, why wouldn't they? He's their king. The king should do something. They trusted their king. They hoped in their king. And this is where our story begins to intersect a little bit with this Old Testament story. Because what's true for them and what's true for, for us is that we place our hope in what we depend on. We place our hope in what we depend on, don't we? And, and even more than that, we place our hope in who we depend on. And when the person we place our hope in disappoints us, 
oftentimes to the very measure that we've trusted and hoped in them is to the very measure that we feel disdain and discomfort and even being upset and being angry. You kind of know this feeling. Like as a person, we tend to trust and hope in our parents the most. Even some of us today, we may still be trusting in our parents the most. And and there's this relationship where they can kind of make us the most upset or we can make them the most upset. And if you don't believe me, listen to this a little bit. Have you ever had this with your kids? They're just, they're, they're runts, they're rascals, they misbehave, they're disrespectful. And then you send them to a friend's house and they come back and they say, man, he was so kind. And you're thinking, I knew you had it in you. I knew it was in you. He was such a gentleman. She was, she was such an angel. And you're like peeking around their shoulder like, did you bring the right kid back? Because as a parent, there, there's that relationship. We trust and we hope in, in them the most, but man, they can make us the most upset. And you'll disbehave and you'll misbehave and you'll disrespect your parents. But you never do that to the neighbors. And there's this relationship among, about who we depend on and who we trust in and how they have the ability to almost let us down and disappoint us and make us the most upset. Saul in the story, interestingly enough, he's like conspicuously missing, isn't he? He's in his tent. Goliath makes this call day after day, twice a day. And the king, the tallest man in all of Israel, is nowhere to be found. And as Saul continued to hide away in his tent, his credibility began to wane. And the hope for the army of Israel, that began to be destroyed and began to wane as well. Now the thing, the thing is this, the stalemate between the armies of Israel and the armies of of the Philistines really illustrates this point that God never wanted Israel to have a king to begin with, that it was never God's plan for Israel to have this, this kind of kingship, to be this kind of nation that, that it had kind of developed into to begin with, that, that God's intentions with Israel, as we're going to see, is really, really kind of extraordinary and completely different and really like thousands of years ahead of its time. You see, about 400 years before this, in like uh, the very beginning of Israel kind of becoming its nation, God established Israel as a theocracy. Basically, God is the king, God is the ruler, and this, it's a nation of laws. God gives the laws, and it's administered by the judges, that God would be the king, and God would give the law, and these wise men, these judges, would kind of administer the law among the, 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 the people, among the nation of Israel. And this was so advanced for its time because every other nation, it had a king. It had a king who was, who was a, a, like a primary ruler who could do what he wanted, who could make the law what he wanted, who could behave the way he wanted because he was king. I mean, that's what every other nation did. That's what the nation of Egypt did. The Israelites just came out of Egypt. Egypt had a pharaoh. Egypt had a king who could do whatever he wanted, abuse people, torture people, make slaves of people. God didn't want that for his nation. God said, I have a better way. This was like thousands of years ahead of the time. Whether you believe in God or the Bible, you're kind of a skeptic. You don't know what you feel about Christianity. Even you can agree. This was like thousands of years ahead of its time where a king kind of sat outside, made the laws, and the laws were administered to fairly by the people. Now this took place in the 11th century, so you can imagine, you know, you know the, the nation of Israel's kind of developing and they're kind of looking out and, and looking at, at their kingdom and their rulers and their laws and judges, and they're probably thinking a lot, well, like what we're thinking, you know? This is the 11th century. Like it's time for us to grow up. It's time for us to have a king. I mean, this is, this is the 11th century. How much more modern can you get? And we're still doing this old like God being the king thing. We need our own king. So they go to, to who was their like primary leader at the time, Samuel. He was a prophet. He's the guy who, who wrote this book. 
This is, it says this in 1 Samuel. When Samuel, who was the prophet, he was like the go-to person, the leader uh, of kind of the nation of Israel who kind of dispersed the laws. He grew old. He appointed his sons as Israel's judges because Samuel knew that, you know, I'm getting old. It's my time to kind of move on. Somebody else needs to kind of take my place. So I've got to raise up my sons to be the judges. But there was a problem. His sons weren't good guys. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, and they accepted bribes, and they perverted justice. It essentially means these guys were no good. They were crooks. And whoever came before them as judges, whoever had the most money and paid them off, typically won the case. These were Samuel's sons. So the people of Israel are getting upset. They bring Samuel out. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, you are old. It's a great way to start your, your, your next speech, isn't it? You're old, Samuel. But that's not all they said. They said, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. It's like, hey, Samuel, all the cool kids have one. Can't we have one too? Like, all the cool nations get a king. We want a king too. But here's what they forgot. And here's what complicates the story in the, in the Old Testament. Unfortunately, it continues to complicate some of the things as we kind of move around as a church today. God established the nation of Israel for a very, very specific purpose. And the purpose of this nation of Israel carried out many years beyond them, to many places beyond them. And they, they couldn't see with the foresight what God was trying to do. You see, years and years before this, God made a promise to a man, a man that you probably all have heard of, a man named Abraham. He said to, to, to what we would call him, Father Abraham. He said, hey, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless the, not just your family, not just you, not just your nation. I'm going to bless the entire world through you. I have a plan for you and for all of your descendants, and through them, through this nation I'm building up, through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless the entire world. Sure enough, God's plan was that one would come, and not be like a king, but the king would come, and he would bless the entire world through what he would do. See, God had a very, very specific purpose. God's intention all along was that this nation of Israel, as they began to, to live under this theocracy, under, under God with these judges, and, and things began to happen in their nation, that all the surrounding nations would kind of look at Israel and, and go, who is your God? Like, who is your God, Israel? I know it's not your king because you don't have one. But, but who is your God? Because who's keeping your borders safe? And who's causing your crops to grow? And your children, your babies to be born healthy? Who, who's causing them to grow and live longer lives than our people live? Like this kind of stuff doesn't happen from a king. And you don't have a king. So we want to know, hey, Israel, who is your God? You see, God's intention all along was that this nation that was kind of ruled by God would be a blessing to the rest of the world. And the rest of the world would look at it and say, we want some of that. How do you get that? Because our king isn't doing that for us. How do we become like you, Israel? The story continues. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, <clears throat> they displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to what all the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Say, so, hey, Samuel, I established this nation, and I established this nation with me as the king. So their complaints, they're not complaints against you. They're complaints against me. They have, they, have, they have basically thrown me out as their king, and they want someone else. They've rejected me, Samuel. So God tells Samuel this. Now listen to them. But warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them 
will claim as his rights. Or in other words, like let the people know it's not going to be as easy as you think. It's not going to be as simple as you might think it's going to be. You see, when you get a king, he begins to tax you. When you get a king, he takes a percentage of your crops. When you get a king, he takes the very best land. When you have a king, he's going to draft your sons into his army. When you get a king, he's going to make your, force your daughters to serve him. You see, when you get a king, it's not going to be as easy as you think it might be. But the elders insisted, give us a king. You see, what's interesting to me is this insistence that the nation would continue to insist against God for a different king. You see, when we look at the life of David as this, this young boy who ends up becoming the king, and arguably he becomes the greatest king in all of Israel's history, what's really interesting is that David had this different perspective on God than the rest of the nation had. You see, as arguably great, the greatest king of Israel, we see this in David. There was something in him that was reluctant. There was something in him that was extraordinarily confident. But there was something in him that was also extraordinarily humble as well. And unlike the average king, really unlike any king, king of Israel or king of any other, uh, any other nation, David was different. David actually loved the law. Now, typically, as a king, you don't love the law. You are the law, right? You do whatever you want, and if what you say or how you behave is different than the law, do you know what they did? They rewrote the law to be in accordance with how you lived and how you acted. They were above the law. But David, this king, loved God's law so much. And we're going to see this later as he writes. David wasn't just this, this young shepherd boy. He was a poet and he wrote psalms and songs. And, and even through all of these things, you can see his love and his affinity for God's law. Even when he broke God's law, he submitted himself to it as a king and allowed God's law to break him. See, this was unlike any other king. This was unlike any other leader who was above the law and forced the law to accommodate them. David realized that this law that was given was given by God for the nation of Israel. And no one, not even me, is above it. And when I step out of line, I will submit and I will be corrected as well. You see, David had this extraordinary clarity, even as a king and even as a young boy, this extraordinary clarity. He was never, ever confused. Throughout his entire reign, David reigned for 40 years, and he was never confused about the identity of Israel's true king. Never. Even with all of his popularity, even with all of his power, even with all of his influence, not one point in David's life was he ever confused about the identity of Israel's true king. See, what's interesting, though, is we can't often say that about us, can we? Because when a little success comes our way, it, it confuses the best of us, doesn't it? We get a little success at something, and, and then immediately we become kind of the, the rulers. We sit on the throne of our life, right? We get a little parenting success, a little family success, maybe a little sales success in our business. We get a little success at, at school or at education. We get a little success in our community, and, and immediately we de dethrone God, and we sit on the throne of our lives, and we begin to trust in who? Us. We begin to depend on us, and that's when the downfall happens. You see, this whole kind of experiment with the nation of Israel was God saying, ultimately what I want from you, Israel, is to depend and to trust in me. David, the king of Israel, he never made that mistake. In fact, we catch a glimpse of him, and this is an extraordinary perspective. is this 15-year-old boy trying to, to, 
to really just bring his brothers a gift, but he gets kind of caught up in this and has this, this extraordinarily clear perspective. Listen to this. I always found, thought, found this really funny. On hearing the words of the Philistines, Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. I mean, of course they would be. They're there, and there's this giant facing them down. But, but lo and behold, this, this little 15-year-old boy just got his learner's permit, can't even drive to the battlefield. He's sent from his father to bring gifts to his brothers, who are the, these veterans in Saul's army. Right? He brings them these gifts, and he shows up, and there's this kind of commotion on the front line. So David, this teenager, this young man, as any young man would, he kind of makes his way to the front to hear what's going on. And he catches Goliath making the same threats he's always made. For over a month, this has been happening. And David shows up, and Goliath is making his threat. And as the armies of Israel, and as Saul hear these words, and they get dismayed, and they get terrified, there's something different in David. He's not terrified. He's not dismayed. He hears Goliath make all of these kind of demands and accusations against the armies of Israel, and David gets offended. He gets angry. Like, who in the world does he think he is talking to us that way? He gets upset. And David begins to see, some, see this, this whole kind of interaction with this giant, with, with this clarity that no one else begins to see. He even asks questions that no one in the army of Israel has been asking. He hears Goliath's threats, and he hears perhaps that Saul might do something for the man who, who goes out and faces Goliath. So this is what David, David asked the men standing near him, what will, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine? And listen to this, removes this disgrace from Israel. And all the soldiers are kind of hanging around him, and they're like, what do you mean, what will Saul do? Like, if you go out there, you're dead. He's not doing anything but burying you. Like, like what do you mean, what will, what will be done? And what, what do you mean by, like, this disgrace from Israel? Like, we've never seen it that way. We, we just, this is just a threat, but, but you're seeing it kind of differently, David. What do you mean, this disgrace? And, and let's be honest, you're just a boy, like, who are you to go out there and fight him? Like, what do you mean? What is Saul going to do? And, and what's this whole thing about this disgrace from Israel? Because that's not the way that I've seen it. And then David says this. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, nobody has asked that question. All of Saul's army with his greatest warriors, King Saul, head and shoulders above everybody else. Nobody's asked that question. David's looking out and he's saying this uncircumcised Philistine, that's really just Goliath is kind of out of God's covenant. Goliath isn't part of the nation of Israel, the nation that God is using to, to bless and bring about this new kind of, this, this new world, this new thing that's going to happen. Goliath is outside of that and he says, this man who's outside of this covenant is coming and making threats against our land. That's the land that was promised to us, the chosen people by our God. You see, he's not just defying God's army, but by defying God's army, he's defying our God. And David gets angry. He doesn't get weak. He doesn't get timid. He's not afraid. He's upset. Who is that man to come against us and make threats against our land? Something needs to be done. How much can we learn from David? Just there. When we stare down the enemies in our life, when we stare down the threats in our life, are we ready to tuck tail and run and be timid? Or do we get offended like David? Who are you to come against me? David gets offended. He gets angry. Word gets back to King Saul that there's someone in the camp who, who may have slipped their hand up. There's someone in the camp who's ready to go fight Goliath. So Saul gets excited, and he calls David in to meet him. And when David walks through the tent, Saul immediately loses all hope. Who's this boy? 
He's a boy. There's no scars. There's no, there's no like war experience. He has no idea how to be a part of a shield wall. I mean, he doesn't even have a weapon. This boy's not going to do anything. And he immediately dismisses David. David says, wait, 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 King Saul, wait. Before, before you like push me out and dismiss me, I understand that I'm just a boy. I understand that I'm just a shepherd. I understand that I have no war experience and I don't even own a sword. But, but Saul, as a shepherd, there was a time when a lion came and he took one of my sheep. And, and I did what most shepherds don't do. Most shepherds would run back to the rest of the flock and protect the flock and be okay with losing one. You see, I didn't want to go home and tell my dad I lost one. So I chased that lion down and I beat it to death and I took my sheep back. Another time a bear came and did the same thing. And I chased that bear down and I killed it and I got my sheep back. King Saul, the same thing is gonna happen on this battlefield. He says, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. The uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Because, not because I'm a soldier, not because I have any military experience, but because he has defied the armies of the Lord. You see, Saul, it has nothing to do with me. I'm not that good. It has everything to do with the God that he's defying. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine as well. There was absolutely no confusion in David. He saw things with such laser focus and clarity. Nothing was going to get by him. Nothing was going to discourage him. As a young 15-year-old boy, he looked out upon this army and said, it isn't up to you to win this battle. He's defying God. God will win this battle. As David went on to live his life for the next 40 years, there was something that, that, that was so apparent in him throughout his time as king, that we even see a glimpse of now as this young boy. And it's this, that the man or the woman whose hope is in the Lord need not fear. That the man or woman whose hope is in the Lord need not fear. Even when there's something to be afraid of. Even when it looks like your life's falling apart. Even when it looks like you're on the brink of financial ruin. Even when it looks like you have no idea how the next few days are going to carry out in your life. Even when it looks like your relationships are, are just completely being destroyed. He who hopes, she who hopes in the Lord will not fear. And so he said, King Saul, pick me. Choose me. Let me go do what no one in your army is willing to do. Let me go do what King Saul, even you as king, aren't willing to do. Let me go fight the giant. You see, what's really cool about this is we don't just get the things that David said in this kind of story. Later on, we know as David being a poet, he wrote psalms, he wrote songs. We kind of get a glimpse into like the mind and the heart of David that really show us something unique about this young man that he believed even as a teenager, but it carried with him through all of those years he reigned as king. And that's this. He wrote this in Psalm chapter 25. He says, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My trust in you, O oh Lord, my God. I put my trust. Hey, David, who's your trust in? I mean, is it in your confidence? Is it in is it in your kingship? Is it in your power? Is it in your influence? No. My hope is in the Lord. You see, this was the posture of David as a young man. And what was interesting about this is this is what God had intended—the very posture to be of the nation of Israel. 
to say my hope and my trust are in the Lord. And what's interesting for us is it's the very same posture our Heavenly Father wants for us. For us to say, my hope isn't in me. I'm not sitting on the throne of my life because I got a little success. My hope and my trust are in the Lord. And when my hope and my trust are in the Lord, there's nothing for me to fear. I need not fear, even though there might be something out there for me to be afraid of. I need not fear because my hope isn't in me. It's not in another man. It's not in success. It's not in church. It's not in politics. It's not in money. My hope and my trust are in the Lord. Then he goes on and he says, no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. And then he writes something that, that kings typically don't write because as kings, you're, there's this proudness and there's this, this idea that, that you know everything and you have all the power. And as a king, he writes this, guide me. But David, you're the king. Guide me and teach me for you are God my savior and my hope is in you all day long. Going back to this story, 15-year-old boy, clear-eyed, confident, yet in some strange way, humble. David begins to make his way out to the Valley of Elah between the two mountains with the Israelites on one side and the Philistines on the other. And you can just imagine how this is playing out. He begins to approach, and as they get, the Philistine army gets a better glimpse of him, you, begin, you can just imagine, like the laughter and the glee. It's a boy. They sent a boy to fight our, our warrior, Goliath, the giant. You sent a boy, and they're just laughing. It's like a joke. And then on the other side, there's just this tremendous fear because they're saying, you sent a boy. You're sending a boy to fight a giant. Why would you send a boy? If he loses, like he most assuredly will, now we're slaves to the Philistines forever. Saul, what are you thinking? Why would you send a boy? David makes his way out. Goliath continues his threat like he has for the last month, two times a day. David waits till he's done. You can almost sense this, this calm, right? That's the calm that you need to be scared of. There's this calm in David, staring up, like he's not staring down. He's staring up the eyes of the giant who's making these threats. So, and this is a massive man finishing his threat to the army of Israel. And David looks up and says this, so Goliath, <clears throat> you come at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come at you with the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. Let, let, let me tell you something, Goliath. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to kill you. And then I'm going to kill the entire Philistine army. And the feast, the, the, the birds of the air and, and the birds of the land are going to feast on your corpses today. And all the nations will know, and this army of Israel will know, that it, Israel wasn't saved by a sword or a spear or a javelin, but by the Lord, because the battle belongs to him. So Goliath, this very day, I'm going to kill you. And at that, David reached out and took his little leather sling and a stone and killed a giant. And immediately he became the most popular man in all of Israel. Immediately he became this war hero, this little 15-year-old boy who just saw with such clarity that this giant wasn't just defying an army, but he was defying a God. And if my hope is in that God, there is nothing for me to fear. The Philistines made their tragic decision of turning and running. They tried to run away and the Israelite army, after seeing Goliath fall to this young boy, they were just filled with this confidence and boldness. They chased the Philistine armies down and completely destroyed the army and became rich on the plunder from that camp. You see, because David did what 
no one in the army could do. David did what King Saul failed to do because David saw something that King Saul could not see. See, but for those whose hope is in the Lord, they see clearly, they act confidently, and they walk humbly. They see clearly, they act confidently, and they walk humbly. They recognize, and here's the key. Here's the key for all of us. They recognize that they can't control the outcome. There are too many variables in the outcome. I can't control the outcome of this situation. I have no idea how it's going to go, but I'm going to trust in he who does. I have no idea how my life's going to turn out. I have no idea how this situation is going to turn out, but my hope is in the Lord, and my Lord holds the whole world and all of the variables in his hand. And they declare like David declared every morning, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. Here's what I want. I'm going to ask all of us to say this together, even those of you who are online watching it later. Say it in front of your computer screens and look a little ridiculous. I want you to say it with me because this is such an incredibly powerful statement. And whether you, you, you believe in Jesus and in this whole Christianity thing or not, this is Old Testament. This is before Jesus, so you can say this with confidence. If you're a theist but you're not sure about Jesus, you can still say this. But, but even if, even if you, like, you don't believe any of that, this is just a powerful statement that we don't trust in ourselves. We don't trust in our ability. We're not sitting on the throne of our lives. My trust isn't in my wealth or my power or my success. My trust is in somebody else who sees all the outcomes, who knows exactly what's going on, who sees the bigger picture, even though I only see in part. That's a powerful statement. It's a powerful idea, and it's a powerful thing for us to learn. So let's say this together out loud. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. Now, isn't that powerful? And how much would that change your life the next time you're faced with your enemy and your giant? How would that change the next time you're at work and there's just, you know, th th that this overwhelming, um, uh, like, almost movement against you. It just feels like, like everything's kind of working against you. What if in your marriage, that giant, that Goliath in your marriage that you're facing now, it just doesn't seem like this young, small person can beat it. What if you looked that thing in the eye and said under your breath, just like David, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. See, in those moments, when it looks like the world has turned against you, when it looks like, like everything has beaten you down, there is confidence in knowing that the outcome isn't up to you. The outcome is up to the one who controls the whole world in his hand. In you, Lord, my God. I put my trust. That was David, an imperfect king, an imperfect man, but who never ever thought during his entire reign that he was the true king of Israel. I'm going to tell you a story. There was a, a funeral that I heard of uh, just recently about a 25-year-old man, a young man who passed away. And generally, when you do funerals, <clears throat> you, you typically ask the family if they'd like to speak to be a part of it. You know, this is your memorial service. You're remembering your family. Would you, do you have something you want to say? Do you want to speak at this kind of, kind of event? And more often than not, the family does. But when it's, when it's something tragic like the loss of a son, when it's something tragic like the loss of, of your immediate family, it's most, more often than not, families decide not to because it's, it's so painful and it's so hard. And to get the words out without being an, an emotional wreck, it's just, it's excruciating. Well, this funeral 
It wasn't just one family member who spoke. But this young man who died, his mother got up, his father got up, and his brother got up. And they all shared about this incredible influence this, this man had on their life. But not just that. There was this, this hope in this just like unimaginable circumstance. I'm going to share with you some of the words the father says, but here's what I want us to realize. In all of our circumstances, no matter what they are, no matter how big or small they might seem, when you're staring down odds that are just insurmountable, when you're in the middle of a circumstance that just seems to completely wreck and rock your world, there is the ability to have hope in the midst of those circumstances. When it feels like life is just overwhelming you, like the sea's about to come crashing down on your soul, there is the ability to hope. Here's what this father said about his 25-year-old son who passed away. He said, if I could bring him back, I would. I've asked God why he chose to take Alec and not me. The father should always go before the son. And to that question, there has been only silence. And I wait patiently for the answer. And I must accept God's will. But it comes with a tidal wave of tears that I fear I will be with forever. And the tide of despair that we are fighting, there is every reason to grasp the gift of hope that each and every one of you has extended to us. God does this. And the mystery that is his beauty, in the very same moment that he has called Alec home, he has chosen to lift us up as a family. You see, he sees clearly. Even in the midst of extraordinary loss, they walk confidently. And they wouldn't tell you or they would tell you rather, it's not because we're strong. It's not because I have some great success. It's not because I'm Jim and I'm the pastor of Journey Church. But it's because in you, O oh Lord, I put my hope. And I will trust in you. No matter what life brings, no matter what my circumstances are, I will trust in you all day long. David, as we're going to discover, was in fact Israel's greatest king. And he never confused himself with who the real king was. As it turns out, David will be considered Israel's greatest king, not because he was perfect. In fact, he was flawed. And we're going to go in a little bit into that story. But for this week, we're going to leave it right here. David was Israel's greatest king because he knew who Israel's true king was. And his hope was in the Lord all day long. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, for this incredible story. I thank you that, that this story, Lord, survived thousands of years and gives us this incredible image of what it was like to live in these ancient times. But more than that, God, what it was like to trust in this unforeseen God and our Savior in the midst of overwhelming circumstances. I pray for each of us that our, our response would be just like King David's, that in you, O oh Lord, I place my hope, and I will hope in you all day long. God, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to see clearly, to see through all, all of, of the circumstances and all of the things that tend to overwhelm us and to trust in you and you alone. Give us the courage to do it when it gets hard. In Jesus' name, amen.